Hello, and welcome to the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind. The show that explores the intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. I'm your host, Colette Rausch, and today we are talking about the nexus of trauma healing and truth-telling, reconciliation, and peace-building. Our guest is Auntie Pentakainen. Auntie is executive chair of the Mary Hope Foundation, as well as the founder of the Mary Hope Center for Reconciliation at George Mason University and the Think Peace Learning and Support Hub. He also served as the Secretary for the U.S. Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Leadership Group and is a special envoy for the Finnish Prime Minister. Welcome, Auntie, to the Think Peace podcast. It's great to have you with us here today. Thank you, Colette. And it's been a year and a half since you and I started to work together. And I just want to say how happy I am every day for uh, you've been such a miracle for, for me as a colleague and for us as a field. So thank you for everything that you have done and are doing. Thank you, Auntie, for your kind words. It's been such an honor and pleasure to have the opportunity to work with you too. So let's start talking about what was it that first got you interested in working on reconciliation? And then specifically, where that led you to your curiosity and your understanding of how aspects of trauma and neuroscience fit into reconciliation processes. But let's start first with the story of Auntie and, and how, you, how you came to the realization of reconciliation being such an important, important thing for us in the world. Well, looking from the retrospect, I cannot you know, bypass about thinking about the very early uh, years I got involved and, and, uh, and while being a student activist and, and being in South Africa, of course, I had no clue of the substance, nor that I would be personally involved later on, on kind of rethinking and reconfiguring this beautiful concept. But, but I was working in South Africa for a moment in 1996, and uh, I had the chance to observe the society, first of all, how it was living through this horror of sharing and that desire to move beyond and how hard it was, but also getting to know a bit some of these characters, there was a chance to visit and, and stay with the Sisulus in the Soveto. And, 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 and from the distance, I was able to get to learn also Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela. So, so kind of, it was a moment, monumental idea that, that this vehicle is there when the past is too difficult just to forget and, and walk besides that. Uh, it took a long way for me to understand kind of the full essence of, of reconciliation. And, um, and I came to it from two angles. First was on the realization, having worked in peace mediation and, and with peace processes, is that, okay, there is something deeply wrong. This is not producing results. And, and second was kind of incredible realization of the power of human mind to move beyond incredible pain and how actually rich the human traditions are on enlightening how that can happen and then just kind of wondering that why is there such a hidden treasure within the politics of peacemaking and peace building 
why is it that we understand it so little? And, and I started to think that, okay, could I learn to understand this phenomenon a little bit better? Could I help to communicate those findings? Could I help to frame something that could help the world community to build on this incredible treasure while working on such a beautiful and powerful and what's needed concept as peace and, and, and reconciliation and healing. So it was this kind of a journey to find almost like a treasure and then asking myself that, okay, what is it that I can do? And I've always kept it very clear to myself that I'm not necessarily here the expert. I'm more like a vehicle for something that's way older and that's way more beautiful than I can comprehend. But I can also be part of making sure that we understand its value. When you came to that realization that you described and then started on that journey of working with the treasure as you defined it, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like in practice, how someone might work within a reconciliation process or work with others in bringing this knowledge together, as you mentioned, coming in as an outsider to a community? How best can one engage in a way that is, that is constructive and helpful? beautiful question i'd like to go back into the moment when uh one of our previous prime ministers Sipila, who had asked me to help him with the refugee crisis and i was his envoy and um we were flying back from a european council meeting where the european heads of states discussed and, and um and he was working on his future schedule and then he after a while you know asked me to come to sit with him in the back and he said we're we're going to celebrate our 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 first hundred years anniversary as a nation. And I'd like us to look in, in, inside and see where we still have to heal. And, and uh, I feel that there's something we have to do with the Sami indigenous people, but I have no clue what to do with it. I feel I have an obligation, but could you please go there and try to find out because you've been working with these issues overseas. And I took that as an incredible honor. It's, it's, it's actually much easier to go abroad and, and try to pretend that you're, you're wise and helpful, but working with your own context is always much more difficult. So I took it as a huge, rare honor to be asked to help with my own country. Auntie, can you describe and talk a little bit about the Sami people and the work that you've done in the context within Finland, where you were living? So the Sami people are the last living indigenous people in Europe and they reside in four countries, which is Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia. And um, simultaneously, basically, the three Nordic countries are having certain reconciliation processes involving the Sami. And basically, we are dealing with about three, four hundred years of colonialism and assimilation with very different forms where the church was involved in in finding the, the healers and, and even killing the healers of the Sami, burning their ritual equipment. And, and um, up to the modern state of Finland uh, boarding schools where basically the Sami children were taken from their parents and uh, kept in schools so they could only see their parents for a couple of times a year. So the legacies of, of these policies go very long and have affected Sami for centuries. There is about 10,000 Sami currently living in Finland. It's, it's, so it's not a very huge population. 
but they have the Sami land in northern Finland that is is their territory that they have self-governance and they have Sami parliament but the feeling general feeling of the Sami is that the the same policies attitudes and legacies continue till today so the commission is being tasked to look into historical injustices but also the how the uh, how it's affecting today's relationship between the Sami and the state but I also had a very personal connection to the Sami because um, as a child, I had observed my dad doing a lot of research and he had written several books about the Sami and their like ancient faith and tradition. And, um, and I think he had personally helped a great number of Sami scientists to move, move into the academic career and so on and so forth. So I also felt this kind of curiosity that what is it that I can do in the chain of generations for this incredible people that I have learned to respect and, and, and love since my childhood. Well, when I went to the Sami land, um, they had discussed this idea of a truth and reconciliation process with their Nordic peers. And, um, and it was one sentence in the Sami parliament's agenda, but there wasn't anything practical um, on it. And, um, and while I, I, I spoke to about 45 uh, people there, I started to raise this question in the in the discussions that how would you feel what this process should look like and and um, and uh, looking from the retrospect um, one mistake I did in the beginning which is still affecting the process is that uh, once you have you are coming from a painful legacy of assimilation colonialism where your tradition has been taken away from you. Um, and there's this incredible intergenerational pain. The pain goes very deeply inside the community and the distrust this community feels often to the oppressor is being internalized and the distrust is very strong within the community as well. And I should have started with enabling, calling for and supporting an internal healing process within the Sami um, uh, so that they would have gained a joint understanding what the process should look like and how to actually build a critical mass of, of ownership within the community for a process. Um, and I still see this being affecting deeply the process at this point. The Sami Commission is in crisis. Uh, their acting chair has resigned. So a, a very complicated situation, not uncommon, but, but still a complicated situation. And I feel like if that kind of internal trust building and awareness and knowledge would be there, this would be the time when these people would step in and, and provide direction. I still believe those people exist, but, but I can also see this internal distrust playing a significant role. What kind of brought me to the field of reconciliation was that I, I started to think about how could I help the community imagine what a process could look like and um, and came up with this idea with the current or the previous president of the UN Permanent Forum for, for Indigenous Issues, a very prominent Sami activist and lawyer, Anna Morgan. And we decided to create, create an academic course where we basically provided general knowledge about mediation and reconciliation uh, about the specific Nordic and some issues and then we had like a subgroup of 25 people trying to feel and learn what actual reconciliation could look like 
and um, and and so as an outsider, it was very clear to me that I'm only there in service of a process rather than being a significant actor in the process. I was there to help the community to have an illumination of what the process could look like and come up with some practical ideas. And, and, and I think this course was much more significant and could have become the foundation for this kind of internal healing if we would have been able to continue that, that I was, I was calling for. So there, there are a lot of nice innovations coming out of those discussions and, and dialogues. And, and um, But as an outsider, you can come and give some ideas. You can create some reflection spaces. You can create these intimate connections to other commissions where they can ask questions and, and, and feel for themselves, how would our process look like? But you also have to be very clear that as an outsider, there's only so much you can do without the invitation of the community especially indigenous communities, they have to lead their own processes and commissions. And you are able to, to, to support based on the trust upon your character and your intent. Yeah, and that's a very important distinction. When you were talking about it, um, it prompted me to think of the term be of service and support meaning upon invitation um, and discussion and dialogue with um, individuals who are, are seeking input on a process. So it's really of service rather than, as you mentioned, coming in um, with an external imposition, especially as it sounds like in a community or a situation where there's been a dynamic historically of external actors or colonialism or other factors that have created this power over type of a relationship. So it's shifting that dynamic it sounds like from what you're saying yeah yeah and and i mean tekla namachana wanjala one of our colleagues in the think piece has said that these conflicts are eternal and our ability to resolve them are eternal somehow peace and reconciliation has been projected pro projectized and uh, she's critical of peace building becoming an armchair and boardroom effort while I think this deep knowledge of what a holistic healing means are and have been in the communities, but have been a lot dismissed by these professional um, armchair and boardroom peace builders. And, and for example, rituals, the meaning of rituals in terms of healing have been forgotten and often lost. And I think what you and I are, and why I'm so thankful for you is that we have to integrate this element of healing into technical processes. Somehow this technical side has been overpowering and getting a lot of attention and resources, but this internal process of human mind and the need to rebuild those relationships hasn't really been understood. And, 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 um, and to an extent that perhaps, you know, peace builders and reconcilers and the organizations doing this are themselves very deeply traumatized and cannot address their own internal trauma. So I think, especially your work, but that I'm observing closely is, is how can we bring that back, that knowledge and awareness into this field and, and basically help to create processes where this technical side that helps to find the truth and how the oppression is happening in, in a system and come up into conclusions. How do you have reform systems into an internal healing process. I, I think that is the critical 
thing that we have to discover. Yeah, and that was beautiful the way you described it in that when you look at what Tekla said about the danger of uh, projectizing peace building, yet we know from our experiences that the way funding flows, the way things are structured through development projects, um, there's, there's the pull that things become projectized, even if individuals who are managing it know that that's not the way forward. It may not be holistic. The system sets it up that way. So it's very challenging to figure out how within a project one can do what is needed yet still honor that healing and reconciliation and reweaving of a social contract and fabric of communities and relationships that we have is a process that doesn't know the time boundary of a one-year cycle of, of project funding. And so it's just, it's a challenge, I think, for the, in, for the field, for the individuals in it, because I think I can speak personally. It's this, and I, I know you and I've talked about this, it's knowing this, yet trying to navigate the world in which we sit to be able to, that, that there's sometimes a mismatch between what is often set up as projects versus the process of healing and transformation. Um, and then the other aspect I'd love that you touched upon is we bring ourselves to these processes. So oftentimes it's easy for us and to think, well, we're doing something, it's the others, it's we're coming in and not shining a light or a mirror on the pain and the, the divisions or things that we have within our own minds and hearts and experiences and how we bring that into the table. And again, that's kind of like a power over somehow we know more. So all these things come into play. H have you, knowing these challenges, have you found ways that through your experiences that can kind of help thread the needle through these structures, through these approaches that can impact things in a meaningful way, the principles or the techniques that have been helpful for you? Well, I'd like to actually start a little bit further and also through my own personal learning that I have, you know, been able to, 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 to journey in while being in the United States. And, and, and so you and I have had this, you know, incredible honor to work with Dr. Gail Christopher and, and um, she has come up with this model after her comparative research on other transitional justice and, and truth commissions and truth and reconciliation process overseas. That is her recommendation for a setup in a very well-organized governance that has very long legacy of, of uh, oppression that is very deeply in the systems and, um, and that it's really hard to address just on one angle, but you have to have more or less a holistic approach. And I think one of her realizations was that we see very clearly in the United States that in the very long struggle for racial and social justice, no individual policy victory has guaranteed the success. But the mindset that has harmed people in the first place, if it's not addressed, will find new ways to continue the harm. And I think this is the incredible pain in the United States that every time there has been a very significant civil rights legislation passed on 
a new form of oppression has been introduced secretly and silently that continues the pain. That is one of the discoveries that you have to really deeply go into the origins, which in the case of the United States is this false hierarchy of, of human value. The second thing that she has really well understood, and I have seen it myself, is that, and, and, and especially the, the research that you have been bringing together of this, how the victim and aggressor cycles feed each other. That if you're acting upon the pain based on a somehow our brain response, defensive brain response, without becoming aware of everything that goes on in our brain, we are actually easily feeding the aggressor cycle to attack more on us, but also us becoming a perpetrator wherever we have the chance. Um, and, and, uh, and I think her discovery of the need for personal healing as a first step before you can create spaces for others is such a significant discovery that that if you are trying to fight for racial justice in the context of this incredible uh, painful history in the United States, you easily play into this victim aggressor cycle unless you yourself are leading either side or everyone into a new space where something new can be born. And, and I think this speaks to the process how everything starts from somehow a personal discovery, which also means that and, and has to be kept in mind that that healing isn't something that just happens. It's often just a journey and the decision to stay on a journey. And sometimes some kind of a pain requires staying on a journey for your whole life. Or as John Paul Lederach said in our recent meeting, sometimes it just means that you have to live as a wounded person, uh, which, which is a definition of vulnerability and, and resilience as well. So. So I think this, this understanding of the personal discovery and personal how you are playing into the process is such a significant foundation. I can witness that in, in Finland that it, starting a process requires an individual or several individuals, but also stalling a process might require an individual that is not really aware of the type of reactions they're feeling or the way they are playing into this into this uh, victim aggressor you know dynamics um, and I wish that people who start these processes would do a deep personal reflection because they are carrying such a responsibility for other peoples in several generations that they should not let their own traumatic histories to deter a process that's supposed to liberate uh, you know a struggling nation a struggling people Absolutely. And you referenced John Paul Lederach, um, who's an icon in the peacebuilding field and has written and spoken eloquently about peacebuilding in many different facets. And the one thing that really struck me from his earlier writings that came all the way through is he pinpointed the transformative aspect of peacebuilding, which goes back to the the discussion we had about projects or pieces of things, but it's really a societal transformation, individual transformation, that it it's very comprehensive and holistic, which you know Gail Christopher talks about. And I think there's the concern when one talks about the, the aspects of healing 
or you know people might talk about psychosocial support which is one one way of trying to support healing um also psychosocial support there there may be aspects of well-being or spiritual transformation it's not just in the realm of psychosocial but there's many different ways that affect healing and there's you know indigenous communities have ways that they perceive healing and i think the concern and i remember gail christopher mentioned this um, in discussions in the past that the aspect of trauma or healing if if one is not careful could become projectized and kind of an add-on or an industry yet now everyone realizes oh this is important so it becomes something for fundraising and not not grasping that it's it's part and parcel it is the process and so there's this tension i think between how and i know you're you're very cognizant of this and i would love to get your perspective on what does it look like to have healing slash trauma support slash psychosocial spiritual ritual however we as human beings and societies heal and transform and build relationships and navigate pain how that could become part of a peace building endeavor a transformative effect like john paul letterack talks about rather than siloed as a piece that gets morphed onto a project um, and check the box that then could possibly do harm but certainly isn't helping. And it reminds me, one last thing, reminds me a little bit when human rights or gender aspects were coming up in our field and they use the term mainstreaming. And I'm, you know, we have different views on whether that's a helpful term, but what it was meaning is not to just be something that you check the box or add on, but it becomes infused, intertwined and part of the process because it's so core to the um, success of a peace building process. It's a really wonderful question, and I think a multi-layered. And I hope I'm, you know, able to respond to it at, at least partially. But I think now when UNDP has introduced the guidance note on mental health and psychosocial support, like you said, we have to be careful. And the field has to be careful that organizations that may necessarily not have a clue smell cash and find it like a cash machine and start to put the stamp here and there and do projects the old way um uh i think i think the idea that think peace is trying to introduce in terms of giving the leadership and ownership into the communities and actors themselves but creating a very strong peer support structure around these individuals and initiatives which also can become a healing community but also a very dedicated community in terms of feeling out what can be done and supporting and learning while this process move forward together with the actors is, is, is something where I can see a lot of beautiful results coming. I'd like to say one anecdote in terms of the healing, which I think Gail Christopher really beautifully also puts it and says is that we have to be also really careful that a trauma doesn't become a pathology for those who have been oppressed, because this is a way out for the oppressor to self-reflect and reform and transform like you spoke about it those who have been oppressed part of their healing is to have power and gain power on the issues and gain a seat and and uh and i think that's that is really significant part of it. how how i think more broadly this field can progress and learn from the need of becoming a trauma aware uh, is also 
in relation to when reconciliation happens, because we have had this view that somehow reconciliation happens in the post-conflict setup where basically uh, one of the difficult tasks of the aftermath of the conflict is to deal with the broken relationships and whatever pieces become left in the society. However, what we have seen is that conflicts reoccur very quickly. And, um, and there is a cycle of conflict before the reconciliation phase even gets started. And therefore, we have wanted to ask ourselves that how can reconciliation contribute into prevention and even during the hard conflict? Mm -hmm. And I think bringing trauma awareness deeply into our field is such a significant element of prevention. Because when once you become trauma aware, you are starting to understand these automatic reactions, your brain triggers, and what the previous experience generations of experience triggers in these situations. And I think that has to somehow become part of the fabric, how this field works. During the hot conflict, I do believe that in future, no mediation team is effective without having trauma and psychosocial support experts within them. But then when you think about the parties that are fighting each other, they also need some sort of healing. It's, it's too much to expect from a rebel leader or some kind of politician who is in the middle of a war to be able to implement very complex and ethically demanding things like peace agreements or reconciliation processes if they don't find any personal healing within the process. So the way these processes are designed have to be rethinked and, and we have to help think how when you are in a process there is actually space for healing. Our field has spoken for ages about the coffee breaks and, and common meals and prayers and, and this and that, but we have never actually sat through what is the science, art and science behind these things. And, um, and some people were, speak about hospitality, which is, I think, a beautiful gesture of a lot of beautiful things, but, but it should not be just kept for coincidence. Um, uh, I think it should be in the core of this process. And then moving forward, once the negotiations move forward, my, my recommendation for UN would be simultaneously to launch the political track and a security track and a reconciliation track that then has to be led by the communities themselves and include element of, of healing, whichever way it's, it's, it's accustomed to this tradition. So, so I think there is a lot of ways how you know, process design can take into account, but again, it comes to this individual choice. I, I see it so clearly today that that um, those who lead these processes have to themselves journey uh, in this path to be able to invite others to it. It is so complicated and it is so hard that if you're not in the journey yourself, you're likely not even going to understand what it's all about and therefore be dismissive about it as we see often in these cases. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm very mindful when you were speaking um, about the concept of language and how when one approaches even the aspect of trauma, and as you said, Gail Christopher is concerned understandably about having that term then be used as, you know, uh, you know, someone who's experiencing trauma, there becomes a potential with kind of a victim or a powerless type of thing that then just perpetuates power over people. And so where's the sense of agency? It makes me think of almost taking a very wide view and rather than 
this person has trauma, that person doesn't have trauma, to maybe envision that all human beings, because of our stress response and because of how we're wired, our experiences have um, some form of static in their system. Like we want, I won't even use you know terms that sometimes are loaded or one has to define, but they're static in our systems. So we get our buttons pushed. There are certain people we feel more comfortable with or those that we don't. Sometimes we know why, sometimes we don't. So we know all these things through what we're learning from neuroscience about how our systems are wired for threat, for what we see as safe and our experiences inform it how through epigenetics, these things can come through generations. So if we're all kind of walking around as humans with, with this reality of our nervous system and our exposures, if we could almost look at it that way, then we are not dividing people into those people who have, you know, are less than or weaker because they have trauma and these who don't um, are stronger. If we all came to that table, I can even imagine what I mean, it's a very utopia, of course, and maybe unrealistic, but how that could shift the discussions between people who come in to provide support, um, donors, you know, if we're all looking at it at that, in that reality, because um, if a program or an approach is to be devised, at the end of the day, the individuals or the community, as you and I've talked about, have knowledge and capacity, and, and that's where it has to start of what would be supportive for them rather than external people coming in or telling people what it needs to be. And how peer support and learning is, I learn just as much when I'm working, for example, in one country or another, one group, I'm learning just as much from them about myself and my biases as I might be imparting. So I guess the question is, when you devise this peer support, and the, the notion of working together, what informs that? And what does that look like in practice when we have societies and approaches that have become so kind of broken down into this has power, I have knowledge, this is expertise, you don't have it, let me help you. When there's equal footing, if we could look at it as equal footing. Does that make sense? Absolutely, and I think again, you and I have experienced that in the recent year um, in many ways. And, and one of the beautiful moments I think that we share is once we had this initial peer learning space for the US commissions, where people opened up to speak freely and openly about their, their commission and, and, and situation, they were saying, they, they were revealing how screwed up, first of all, the political frameworks were how badly these structures were often broken mm -hmm. and enabled to take that incredible situation, but also how much these individuals were facing difficulties, how absolutely incredibly hard it was in a continuous basis. And, and, and I think out of those revelations, you start to see the beauty and the resilience of these individuals. And, and once they're able to create a space where, where the trust exists and care exists and peer support exists, you're suddenly creating like a protective layer within and inside those processes yeah. that does not become affected by the politics or the internal distrust or something like that. So 
So I think the most beautiful gift that these processes can be given is these safe spaces. And that's why your efforts in creating these think piece guidelines for a community practice are so significant because it wants to live it. It wants to feel it. It wants to be able to, to actually offer something that has these qualities. And, and so when it comes into substance, um, I've always even felt much more that I have so much, so little to offer. There's so much that I can learn. There are so nuanced and complex questions that people are struggling with that as an outsider, even if I work with one case or people a lifetime, I may not understand all those nuances. So that's also another reason why this kind of peer support is so significant that you can bring some comparative um, examples and you can share some ideas, but you will never understand those deep nuances that actually determine if something can succeed and, and actually become operation operational in, in another context. So, so that's why this peer support is something that um, you know I, I very deeply believe in. I also love you have um, you've brought together different disciplines. So I'm also curious because sometimes in our world with with silos and um, you know in peace building field there's this kind of sometimes a feeling of well this expert has to be in this field and other ways of knowing or knowledge are not valuable. Yet what you've done is you've created a, a really diverse um, eclectic group and worked with a group that transcend disciplines, so to speak. Can you talk about your thinking around that and the, the importance that you placed in finding wisdom and knowledge from different sources and valuing them the same? Well, I think um, if I start from the Sami experience, um, this academic group was very complicated to, to run and organize because within this rather, in terms of population, small community, there were people who were fighting each other within that group. And it was really hard to create this type of trust where I am not the solution, but the process, the group does somehow disable and capable of finding the solution and and the most magical moment within the course was when michael lapsley came or one of them i'm sure there were several others for different participants but one ma magnificent example was when michael lapsley father michael lapsley from south africa came to run his healing of the memories retreat and he has a process where people through art put form and shape in the things that there may, may not be words for, that they have not spoken about. And after the drawing, he puts us in the trust groups where people are asked to share, but not fix anything on each other, not even to respond on others, but maybe ask some questions. And in those sharing moments, incredibly during one workshop, uh, several people were able to speak about things they had never spoken about. And that moment terribly created this most powerful illumination for this very, you know, pain broken community that has survived and has incredible resilience at the same time, what it would mean to become liberated from the intergenerational pain. Now, I think that that was kind of the starting, starting point. 
and and that's where I realized that somehow healing has to be very deeply embedded in these truth and reconciliation processes. And and I started to look for those opportunities. And when I came to US and worked with USIP, everybody was pointing their fingers towards college routes. So when, when I saw your email that you were leaving USIP, I had to go after you and, and somehow find out how to collaborate. And, and here we are, you, you were the one who, who brought the knowledge. I had this sense of, uh, of, of experience from this space, but I knew that we had to bring someone who can lead to the quality and detail that we have been able to lead. And I think the, the newer piece uh, uh, series journal is one example, how understanding the group dynamics, how, how understanding the effects of violence, how understanding the effects of trauma, we can become aware and something really significant can start to happen. And, and, and the way you also popularize these things in the podcast is doing huge service for our field. I see that change happening. We, we see that change you know, all, all around us, but then I want Think Peace to be a place where this peer learning happens and this accompaniment can become possible. For me, accompaniment is like a friend asking for help. It has to go beyond any projects. It has to go beyond any incentives that you may have. It's just the level of loyalty and love that takes you into your friend's life. And, and you should not be trusted as a friend if you walk away in those moments. So it's that type of loyalty that we have to have for people who in their difficulties struggling to, to create or manage a process and ask for help. And I would love to think peace to be this kind of place where this kind of loyalty exists and is kept. And I think we also have to be humble in a way that maybe no single field has the final answer, but somehow feeling out honestly with each other how the, in these processes, these different steps can help to move the process forward. We can, we can be of help. I think we have to continuously undo our own feelings of our own expertise or our own silos or our own kind of fields where we feel natural to humbly open the space also for others and other experts, of course would like people to come to think peace that honor others as well, um, that it won't be just us. But I think we also, you know, when it comes to peer support, we have to be ready for very complex learning processes that these things bring to people. Yeah, and you, a couple of things came up for me. First of all, when you were talking about um, my work and my journey, emotion came up. <laughs> so, so I appreciate your words. It was just a, just a, yeah, an emotional response of appreciation. So thank you. And then when you were talking about um, needing to grapple internally, as a, as a as a as a team, as an organization, with the um, relationships and with the process internally and honoring that and being willing to stay with it. And there's discomfort in that because that's, I'm trying to see if this, I can make this make logical sense because it's that grappling with relationship with each other in a team, in an organization that there's an authenticity in that because that's the same struggle we are then engaging with, with those that we work with. So it's almost like inner 
locking circles in a way. And if going back to what Gail said, if we aren't individually navigating our own, and we use the word healing, um, navigating our own things, and then we're doing it as teams, we won't have anything to offer as we're engaging side by side with peer support. And then one can hope that through these interlocking circles, that can support communities, societies, and then spread, you know, more fully. And then it made me think when you were talking about engagement and doing this work and building trust and building relationships and struggle, because it's a struggle sometimes, as we know, in families, it's a struggle with our relationships with our children and our loved ones and our, our <laughs> it's just, it's human struggle and relationships. As we do that, we start to build relationships and trust. And it made, it made me think of, I had this vision of a force field that once we build those and build those relationships, that's where the power and the magic can happen in working with each other in communities. Because once we as humans feel some level of safer connection with each other, even if it's not, you know, if there's struggles, but you can talk and you can share and you can feel safer, there's so much that can be done. And the last thing I'll say is makes me think about when I worked in different countries, how sometimes you build those relationships and when they are there, so much can be done and it, and it may be organic in some ways because you're just seeing what might be done. You're building with that. You're working on that compared to a more traditional projectized one, which is so heavily results-based management, work plans, where everything is so buttoned up and tied down under the guise of accountability. Not that you shouldn't have, you have to have some level of that, absolutely. But when it's so tight, then it becomes just a project and no space for building the magic and the human connection. So it's balancing the peace building field. You know, my entire career in this world, we've struggled with evaluation and everyone talks about how it needs to be strengthened, et cetera. And I worry, that yes, we need the frameworks and the principles and we need to have some, if you don't know where you're going, how do you know you got there? At the same time, it could become so um, technical that we've just lost all of the human connection, the magic and the innovation that can come from it by creating these kind of force fields and support. So I know those are a lot of pieces and concepts, but I'm wanting to kind of get your reactions to some of that? Yeah, I think it goes even much more deeper than just the evaluation. And um, so I used to be a head of uh, an agency, mm -hmm. fairly sizable. I think when I left, it was about 60 million a year. Um, and now looking after backwards, especially after having the chance to work and learn from the African-American community in the United States, I, I have come to realize that, that first of all, the aid structure is such a post-colonial structure where a lot of the wealth that we pretend to be giving as good doers has been taken out of the colonial policies and, and even economies created by slavery. And so there, this power imbalance is actually rooted in, in, in history that is not right, that has to be corrected. And second, it's very risk adverse for your own sake. Uh, the donors want to take the risks, they want to transfer it to the agencies, the agencies over bureaucratize 
these efforts to avoid any risks falling on them, but the risks don't go away and they're eventually left for the people trying to get something useful out of something that is being artificially created by some strange looking graphics and, 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 and matrices overseas in the worst case that they never spoke even to the people themselves with the time limit that doesn't make sense to these people. And, and, and so this is everything that's going on in the development field. And I must say that I, I when I realized it, I, I was quite ashamed of all of the stuff I've been involved and said and pushed while leading an agency. And I think this transformation into more community-based and community-owned aid that we call decolonizing aid, that's only starting, has to go way deeper than we imagine. But gladly, what we were involved in, in and are continuing deeply in the Mary Hawk Center for Reconciliation that's based in the Carter School in George Mason University is to study and understand what we call insider reconcilers. So I've been quite long time uneasy with this obsession about the third party mediator, about this, you know, glory and fame of this incredible individual landing in the middle of conflict and somehow miraculously bring the parties together and then getting a prize for it and, and being celebrated as a hero. This has been strange and odd to me for a very long time. And, um, but we also have still this, this kind of obsession in this field and even actors or organizations are, are rallying and competing for mandates and, and trying to be that significant broker that somehow does the thing. Um, what we forget when we think about this and I think this also comes to legal mediation and domestic mediation efforts as well, um, where there is a kind of uh, a legally uh, obligated mediator, is that it's much more significant that what happens between the parties. And to understand that incremental process the parties have to go through is actually much more significant for our field. And what we're wanting with the insider reconciler concept to understand is that it's almost like a brain that has had like a stroke that has to fix these connections that some, some, something in the brain connects first. And once that is connection is being created, it can rewire itself and start to relate to each other. And this is the way the communities can start. But these are high power moments where those individuals can break. They can be isolated by their communities. They can even be tortured by their communities in the war zones. You have to, we have to understand their their dangers, their resilience, try to support their well-being, and um, and I think these insider reconcilers as starting points are such a significant, you know, new innovative way of seeing this field. But then also how they can help the parties to move into an incremental process. That um, one of our colleagues finding the tweet so beautifully put: you have to first define the inclusion, how we are included, then you have to define the justice. What does it mean? what kind of recognition for what has happened we want to see. And then the fairness, what do we want to see coming out of this that is more just and fair in terms of the, the, the services, in terms of the output and, and sharing of the wealth and, and power. So the incremental process is this transformation that we also sp spoke earlier that has to be somehow you know, brought into. And, and I think the oil in all of this is the healing, individual and collective healing that the machine just jams and breaks if there is no oil. So that's a little bit the, the, the way I see these processes moving currently, but especially I think we have to focus and keep in mind these insider reconcilers because they're such a treasures, but they're often so much 
dismissed and, and often in incredible danger and lonely and, and doing really hard work often without any support. Can you explain a little bit more about when you use the term parties? Can you describe or give an example of who parties are that you were talking about need to come together and that's where the change occurs? And then the other thing is who are insider reconcilers? Defining them and you know just an example to make it concrete of what this looks like. Yeah, when I use the word party, I speak about the parties of conflict. So there can be multiple parties. It can be a majority that has been oppressing a minority, like in the context of the Finnish state and the Islamic community. Or it can be another type of thing, uh, as, as you saw in Nepal uh, with the Maoists, that there has been exclusion and, and, and so on and so forth. So, so the parties can be something that defines a, a, a group that that and, and and like conflicting parties that was the main way I, I view it insider reconciler is somebody who is not they also can be mediators but it's not just somebody standing in between but has deep roots and connections to one of the parties and therefore can influence this party more than an outsider so they are something that's deeply connected but also able and has, has this ethical understanding and, and, and need and urge to, to connect with the other side and start to make sense. We see often mothers groups uh, in, in war zones who, are, who have lost their children connecting and somehow through their stories, making this connection very strong and potentially they can could be a foundation for rebuilding this kind of social fabric and telling how these communities can actually relate to each other. That That's another example of an in, insider reconciler, but but how that kind of that ability to influence your own group is maintained and not lost is kind of the art and science these people have to balance because it's it's often very hard speaking truth, speaking on being honest and, and, and aiming for healing in, in a situation of brutality and violence is a very hard journey and, and, and a choice. And I can imagine as you were saying just now and earlier that to step into that role could bring a lot of challenges and hardship and even attacks on those individuals because in a heightened environment, especially in, in the middle of a conflict or immediately thereafter where there's a lot of harm that's been done, if you're suggesting to your group that they might want to start talking or engage with the other group, that could put you in harm when when sometimes as humans, we feel like, you know, you know, it's us versus them or, you know, a, a tribal kind of division mentality of stay with your own people. If not, you're a traitor to your people. And I can imagine that's what you were talking about. Yeah. And I think like, I really like the, um, the neuro piece about the group dynamics, how, you know, the people you, you have brought to the podcast have also explained how it's a very human, like, or it's on survival instinct that when a threat is approaching, you have to divide in the smaller groups so that you have each other's back and you can defend yourself towards this whatever lion or, or group that is attacking you. That this is a very human instinct in terms of times of turmoil to look for smaller groups. And, and, but it plays out in a very painful way in, in, in many com communities that people start to look 
to each other as potential threats within the same group to divide into smaller group and somehow find safety. And, and this is, I think, the pain of our time and, and very much pain in the United States at this moment. I've witnessed that in, 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 in religious communities that are very you know, dear to me that somehow this, this whatever it's happening in the world is triggering them to turn against each other with you know very questionable reasons and, and ways and and, uh, and and that has made me often want to remind that you know it's a choice you, you have to choose whether you want to be blind for these factors whether you want to be a, a, a community that can become violent because it doesn't want to talk about these issues or can repeat traumatic events it's a choice that you want to become a safe community and after that choice you can start to listen what has made what what has safety meant to us what does it meant for us to be heard and and seen and what has made us feel and what can we learn from these experiences and and after that choice and discussions and agreements on safety, then you can you can start to approach those harder questions that may have to be discussed and, and agreed upon. But unless you do it, you're bound to just repeat the traumas that has happened before. And often the people who have been hurt themselves become perpetrators, become aggressors. But what I often also think about how aggression always hurts the aggressor as well, um, how how the violence that you impose on others will actually hurt you as well. And, and so there are these incredible uh, elements of pain that just become past because people don't have the courage to look into eye what's going on and somehow avoid these hard discussions by, by saying that there, there is some kind of religious justification for just pure um, inability to reflect what you're doing and, and, and that justification of brutality. Absolutely. And earlier you talked about your experiences in the US and its legacy of enslavement and also its treatment of its indigenous peoples. You're Finnish, you're living in Finland now, but you've lived in the US and worked in the US. What are some of your reflections um, being from another country and then being here in the US and working on some of the issues related to racial equity and the legacies. Yeah, I must say, first of all, that a lot of these legacies are still hidden in the United States. And even though I have lived there quite long myself, there are so much that I don't know or understand. So, so I still, have to take into account that there will be more that I have to discover and learn. But to me, it is very obvious that the United States cannot avoid of facing this past, that it will never be become free from this past. It politics will never stop being divisive and hurtful, and, and the risk of the survival of the American democracy is never uh, bypassed unless the United States is, is bold enough to face its own past. And, and so the question is, is should there be, is, is not that should there be a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but why it hasn't happened so far. And I think um, what is really significant in the United States is that the white people don't try to diminish the, the approaches and what black people share and indigenous have to share, but rather humble themselves into being open to listen 
these experiences and 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 after becoming aware and understanding what these legacies and their effects are then joining the process of making sure that they they are not being repeated this is this requires incredibly deep and difficult transformation but it's much more you know it's a beautiful process if you compare it to the to the fear and hate that's been driving the politics of the United States for for a very long time. So my message after seeing a lot of these processes overseas is that eventually there is pain involved, but you shouldn't be afraid of it. You should just be bold enough to enter into these processes and 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 become curious um, and and build become part of building a society that's better for all of its citizens. And in looking at the U.S., you'd mentioned um, people of color, people coming together, white people, and navigating these divisions and navigating the uh, challenges that we're facing in the United States. What mechanisms, you mentioned the Truth Commission, from the perspective of, that we were talking about earlier about healing, what type of processes in your experience might be helpful in engaging in these discussions? My confidence is that the United States has all the knowledge, what it takes to enter into these processes. And I think that by tapping into its own resources, its own wisdom, its own people, um, the United States will find a way that fits its situation and its needs. And one of such group is, is the women of faith who have had to struggle incredible painful legacies of exclusion and marginalization within their faith groups. And they have understood how to navigate that change without destroying what at the same time may be really significant and important for them. So that is just one example of a group that has, that has, has to face a legacy um, and history that has not been really empowering or involving for them. Um, at the same time, I think the resilience of the indigenous people, despite all the harm and all the pain, is incredible. And I think there's a lot of wisdom within the indigenous traditions and indigenous peoples, while at the same time also within the African-American community after forced resettlement and all the difficulties, how they have survived throughout these times. Um, and I think these leaders who have managed to bring their communities and themselves through these painful legacies and their wisdom can be in the core and center of the United States. So I would rather not advise based on some other model how it should look like, but I think what we have seen already happening in the United States is that communities are starting their own processes. They're talking to each other, they're looking for international experiences. And therefore I would invite all those communities who are thinking about this issues to consider launching a similar process. And we welcome them to think peace, to listen to others and learn from them and build a model that fits them uh, and their situation. And I do believe that the national process in the United States becomes possible once a great number of communities have entered this process and realized that this doesn't turn them against each other, but actually creates a reality that is better for all. And once this knowledge is being shared throughout the political spectrum in a bipartisan basis, uh, this can also become a bipartisan national issue that drives the country forward. The last question is, 
throughout our conversation, we've talked about a number of issues related to reconciliation, truth-telling processes, healing, peace building. Is there anything that comes to your mind that you would like to share that has been something that you've been struggling with intellectually or personally or at a deeper level that you know calls calls to your attention well one of these incredible learnings that i've had you know from my colleagues like yourself is a grassroots reparations course that i attended that uh, david Reckland and jody Kettis were feeding and and Dave, as one of our colleagues, have been saying that the midpoint between truth and reconciliation is reparation, which I eventually did not understand until I attended the course. And um, what we know from reparation is that it can also be a trigger towards further division and even violence. That if you try to push for reparation through litigation, uh, it can create a defensive reaction that no way you're not going to get anything out of me. But once you start to understand reparations as more like spiritual choice or journey for yourself where you can become part of the repair, it becomes an opportunity for you to show that after knowing what has happened, you're also open for what, what is it that you can do to repair the harm. And obviously not every harm will be repaired by these individual efforts, but the trust that is being created that you are taking seriously what you have learned and you are making an effort be part of repair creates this new spirit of collaboration and trust that can help them move towards reconciliation and that was really beautiful that i understood and i've been advocating this also in the context of the sami saying for example to the church that you need to step in in terms of dialogue with the sami what is it that they need and you need to commit also your resources but more your spiritual commitment into being part of repair that is obviously not enough just to acknowledge a legacy and think that that leads into reconciliation without clear practical journey together towards that healing that also requires these practical steps. And I, I'm inviting every American not only to be curious about the truth, but also seeking for personal opportunities, how you become part of the repair, because that is what is going to be a beautiful journey. It will give you so much meaning will give so many opportunities of renewed relationships and healing that your life will never be the same. That's beautiful. And I know I said that was going to be my last question, but I want to add one more element to what you're saying. Truth telling. And how does the aspect of truth telling feed into that repair and reparations and reconciliation process in a way that becomes transformative rather than leading to more divisions or um, harm? I think what the United States has witnessed and thought the world is that dialogue itself may not always necessarily lead into greater understanding or even willingness to listen or, or share or have a dialogue, but I actually push the parties further because they have their pre-assumptions from the other side. And I think the truth-telling is much more powerful way because there is so much untold that needs to be shared. And especially if you have been oppressed, there's so much that need to be given the space and acknowledged. And, but truth-telling is also 
requires a personal commitment to share your truth because um, we should not enter a competition of whose truth is most significant, but also acknowledge that there's different sides to the same truth. And while you in the truth telling, it can also be, be the beginning of a, of a healing journey, because once you find out your own family's legacy and part of what has happened, it puts you in a journey where also you want to be part of the repair and, and healing. So. So truth telling, it is in itself has the potential of transform, but alone it rarely does that. And so therefore the commitment after the truth to also be involved in, in making sure that the harm is not repeated is very significant, but also aiming towards a renewed relationship. But I think all of this requires that humility, but also willingness kind of to explore a reality where you yourself can find healing, or you don't have to be that afraid of something that has scared you and being aware that what has been frightening you might not actually be a real thing, but a, a unconscious bias or a trauma that has happened to you or, or previous generations. So I think that's all the, the brain and, and behavioral science is giving us and what trauma awareness is actually giving us perhaps first time in the history, a serious platform to address this, this issues in, in a transformative way. Thank you, Auntie, for, for being with us on the Think Peace podcast and sharing your experiences and thoughts um, related to reconciliation, peace building, and healing. It's been an honor to have you here. Colette, I'm such a fan of the podcast. It's a true honor that I had the chance to talk to you and, and I have this chance to work with you. So thank you, Colette. Thank you for joining us this week for the Think Peace podcast where peace crosses the mind. And thank you to those who make this podcast possible, the Mary Hope Foundation and our amazing senior producer, Cam Kasser. Please visit our website, www.thinkpeacepodcast.com, where you can subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes and news. And remember to think peace.